So hard topic today, honestly. As I prepared for this, I'm like, I feel the weight of this topic. We're talking about slavery. And we're not going to skip this part in Ephesians. We're kind of working through this section that Paul um, is talking about household codes. And Jared mentioned that a few weeks ago. He talked about husbands and wives. And last week was children and parents. And this week, he's talking about slavery. And it's a very hard issue. Thank you, Jared, for giving me this topic. That was great. I appreciate it. That's why I put him in kids' crew. He's over in kids' crew for that reason. <clears throat> but honestly, it's a hard topic, y'all, because I, I really wish... I really wish there was just a commandment in Scripture that says, thou shall not own slaves, but, but it's not in there. And it's a hard thing because I'm, we have to understand why it's not there, perhaps, and what Paul is trying to say in this passage as we go through it, because it's a challenging thing. I came across a historian, um, he, he's a teacher at Baylor, at, uh, Baylor University, and he said this, as a believer in Christ and professor of American history, there's no greater teaching dilemma I face than that of slavery and the Bible. At times, part of me dearly wishes there were, were an 11th commandment in the Bible that says, thou shall not own slaves, but there is no such commandment. And that's a hard thing to say, but it's true. But I believe that Paul is planting some seeds, some important seeds. He's planting a seed in this passage that will sprout and give life to equality. He's planting a seed. Paul couldn't just come out and say, slaves, rebel against your masters and take up arms. There's like 50 people in his church in the Roman Empire. Thomas Kidd says it again this way. He says, at the times of the New Testament letters, Christians could hardly imagine changing the laws of society at large since they were a small, often persecuted sect that many outsiders regarded as a bizarre cult. So the idea that, that Paul could, should have simply said, you know, slaves, you know, take up your arms, rebel against your masters, you know, and, and start this war is just, it's unthinkable. But what he does is, is pretty amazing despite not saying it blatantly. Let's read through the text together in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 through 9. He says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you're working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we're slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. Heavy stuff. It's heavy stuff, especially coming out of the background that we've come out of in our, in our own history in America. The slave trade and the slave issue in the early Roman Empire was, was terrible, honestly, but it was different than it was in America. America was a racial kind of slavery. We took... Africans from Africa and enslaved them. It was a racial type of slavery. In the Roman world, most of the time, it was conquered countries or cultures or cities that they became slaves. So if they lost a war to the, to the Roman army or a battle, they, the whole city was made into being slaves. And they were slaves for life. And they were slaves, their children were also slaves for life. And so it was an end, unending, uh, unending bondage in a sense. You also could voluntarily, if you owed a debt to someone, you could enter into um, becoming a bond servant, and you could pay back the debt over 10 or 15 years. That was a different kind of slavery. Most slavery was of the first kind. The second kind was much more rare. But it's estimated in the first century that between 25 and 35% of people were slaves in the Roman Empire. That's hard to imagine. One out of three 
were slaves. Uh, the top one and a half percent of um, society, the most elite, owned over half of the slaves in society. Slaves were uh, not seen as people. They were seen as property, much like farm animals or, or, or pets. They were seen as not even human in a lot of ways. They were often abused physically and abused sexually. It was very common. And so when Paul begins in verse 5, he addresses the slaves first. This would, be, this would be very shocking to anyone in the church because they didn't, they didn't even think of them as people. And he's addressing them in the place of honor first. And he's saying, I see you. They've come to Christ. These, these people in the church, they've come to Christ and they're, they're slaves. And Paul is addressing them and he's, he's talking to them directly. And he says, serve your masters with respect and fear. Serve them as you would serve Christ. This is a principle that's so important across all of Paul's teachings is that everyone lives unto Jesus. That whatever you do, whatever I do, whether I'm, whether I'm a missionary or I'm working at McDonald's, my life is service unto Jesus. And I'm serving. There's no sacred and secular world. There's all of it is holy. Everything that you do, everything that who you are, where you work, where you go to school, the friendships that you have, it's all holy. There's no distinction. You're called to be salt and light wherever you are. And, and even though you may have a terrible boss, even though you may have a terrible job, even though you may have a, a very hard situation, you're not working for him. You're working for him. You're serving the Lord. And you're serving a greater purpose. And your job, my job, is to usher in the kingdom of heaven and to be salt and light no matter how bad my situation is. So he says, serve them as if you would serve Christ. Try to please them, not just when they're watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart, working with enthusiasm. Again, hard stuff, but he's, he's planting a seed that is going to be profoundly important later in the, in the history of the church in Rome. I'll get that, get that in just a second. I want to jump down to, to, to verse 8. He says something that is even more Shocking. He says this to the, to the owners of the slaves. He says, masters, treat your slaves the same way. In other words, the same way I just asked them to honor you, you are called to honor them. You're, you're called to treat them with respect. You're called to serve them as you would serve Christ. You're called to please them as I told them to please you. In other words, there's this mutu mutu mutuality or mutuality between the two parties. And that would be unthinkable in the first century to say to the masters and the owners of the slaves to see them as your equals, to see them with dignity, with worth, with value, with respect, to see these people as your brothers and sisters. In the book of Philemon, he's, he's talking to a slave owner about a slave named Onesimus who had run away. And he says this to Philemon in verse 16. He is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave. He is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. He's planting the seed of equality that is not as black and white maybe as I, I would have you know, wished it was, but he's planting the seed of equality and he's saying, these are brothers and sisters in Christ, and they deserve the respect and honor that, gives, that is given them because they're made in God's image with intrinsic worth, intrinsic dignity, intrinsic value. And they deserve to be loved. And now what happens 
over time as this seed grows, as the church in Rome explodes across the Roman world, in Northern Africa, in Western Europe, Eastern Europe, the church explodes and grows by thousands and thousands of converts. A man named Constantine becomes emperor in 300 approximately AD, 200 years later. He becomes emperor and he begins to dismantle the institution of slavery. He's a Christian. He begins to dismantle slavery across his empire. Not all at once, but he begins to slowly give the church the authority to make people free. It's truly incredible. He actually gives bishops in his church the authority to make people free. There's a scholar from, uh, from Yale I came across this week named Noel Linsky, and he said this, a little, bit, a little bit heady of a quote, but he said, by making the church into a founding hall of freedom, Constantine was demonstrating that freedom was now a value he wished to be associated with the church. Next verse, next part. The implementation of, this, of the, his politics of libertas, or freedom, in civil law would have affected the everyday lives of people living in or threatened with slavery. And so what happened is a person who was a slave could go into a church and say, I desire to be free, and a bishop had the authority to free them from slavery. So all over the Roman world, slavery is slowly dismantled. But we see the picture, the seed of this in Paul in this simple little passage where he's saying these two parties are equal. Now, just for the record, Scripture is very clear that human trafficking is wrong. It says in Exodus 21:16, whoever steals a man and sells him, anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So there's a difference between slavery and human trafficking. What we see happening in the world today, women, children being sold, being kidnapped and sold, there is no doubt that God is clearly against this incredible evil in our day, as well as the slave trade of, of Africa as we knew in our, in our history. Human trafficking is never tolerated in, in, in the scriptures that we, that we see today. Um, F.F. Bruce said this. He said, Paul brings us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. Our history is tough, isn't it? This is a heavy talk. Our history as Americans and what, what, what's happened in our, in our nation's history is tough. And I look back and I go, gosh, this, this slavery was justified by many, many Christians. I read arguments by Christians in the South, theological treaties arguing for slavery with biblical scriptures and Abraham owning slaves and Moses and whatever, whatever. And I thought, man, this is such a challenging topic. And for many, this is like, this really is, is, is difficult to digest. Should we just deconstruct and just say, this is not the word of God, or this is just, this was just a culturally bound thing and we're, we're enlightened and this is not really God's word. I can't, I can't go there, but I must admit my heart was like, my heart was sort of heavy with this, with even addressing this because it can be a stumbling block for many of us to say, gosh, what part of this Bible can I, can I trust if, if, if God is not openly saying slavery is evil? It's a, real, it's a real question. Deconstruction is an issue that, not an issue, but it's, a, it's a, a real thing. People are struggling with things in their faith and they're deconstructing. They're saying, I don't know what I believe anymore. I'm not sure what I believe about this or that. Is there really a heaven? Is there really a hell? Is Jesus the only way? Is the word of God really accurate? And, and, and oftentimes a tragedy or something in their lives causes them to ask questions. And that's fine. It's good. We all should have, have moments in our life where we begin to, to wrestle with hard things like this. But I'm not willing just to say, eh, it's not God's word. This is not God's word. I'm the authority, y'all. This part is not God's word. 
The, the verses after this and before this are all God's word, but this isn't. I can't go there. I'm not, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to deconstruct to that point in the sense. But I do want to look at the, the cultural implications and the cultural setting this came out of is so important. We understand that Paul is, Paul is so fervently saying, these are your brothers and sisters. And the time is coming. The Spirit through Paul, the Holy Spirit wrote the word of God through men. If we don't believe that, there's a problem. If we just think it was men who were sexist, racist, and so on and so forth, and the Bible's full of just sinful men's opinions, how do you know what's true and what's not? How do you know what, who God is? How do you relate? How do I relate to God? I'm going to share this. I, I had, a, I had a, someone come to me a few weeks ago and say they had a picture uh, of a kind of a vision or idea <clears throat> of this there's a picture of the cross like that, actually our cross. And there was a person with a chainsaw. And he was taking the chainsaw and he said, I don't like this about Christianity. I don't like that about Christianity. And he's cutting, he was cutting part of the cross down and cutting it and taking this part and then this part and this part. And when he was all done, it wasn't a cross anymore. It was like a picture of himself. And you see, that's what ultimately, if we let ourselves go down that road of saying, I'm the authority or some famous writer or theologian that's really popular right now, they're the authority. I deconstruct so much that I no longer have Christianity. I have exactly what I want God to be. I have a picture of me. And I, I can't do that. I won't do that as a pastor, as, as someone who wants to be faithful to these words, as hard as they are. God struck down the firstborn of Egypt, y'all. He sent a flood and killed people because he cares about holiness. In the book of Revelation, he does even worse. That's yet to come. I can't water it down. We can't water it down and say it's just not God's word or God really is a lot nicer than we want him, whatever, whatever. Like, I, I can't go there. We have to serve somebody. That's Paul's ultimate point here is that all of us serve something. All of us serve something. You know, Bob Dylan, 40 years ago, said this. He was a Christian for a little period of time, I think. And he said, he said, you got to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You got to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. It could be the devil or it could be the Lord, but you have to serve somebody. And that's the truth. No one is free. Free will is a myth. All of us are under some authority. And so when Jesus Christ comes and sets us free, he set us free from the devil. He set us free from sin. He set us free from death, but we're still under his authority. We call him Lord. That's the same word Paul uses here for masters. Kurios, it's Lord. He's our master, so we're still under him. We're still under his, his authority. We're still under his leadership. We're not free. We're free from sin, but we're still slaves of righteousness. Listen to what Paul says. He says, but now that you've been set free from sin, Romans 6.22, sorry. Now you've been set free from sin, you become slaves of God. The benefits you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. We have a king, a leader, who is our father as well. Jesus said, I've not just called you slaves, I've called you my friends. I've called you my friends. And he said this in Matthew 10, 26. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first must be your slave. Matthew 10, 26, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
to give his life as a ransom for man. This picture of bondage and freedom is all throughout the Bible, especially the New Testament. This picture, literally Paul talks about that the blood of Jesus purchased us from slavery, as if we were on the slave block, enslaved to sin. And Jesus says, I want that one. What will it cost? And he takes our place with his blood and he pays the price we could never pay to become his. So this idea is is profound and Paul is, in a sense, reconfiguring it in the minds of these early Christians. He's changing the idea. And that's what happened actually in our country as well. Going back to the Civil War days, before the Civil War, let's, just, just, let's, let's go on this little history tangent here. At the time of our founding in 1800-ish, 1776, a very small percent of people went to church. Less than 10% of Americans were members of churches in, in 1800. Jefferson thought the church would be dead in one generation. And so a very small percent of people were, were, were Christians. And then God, in his sovereign love, he sends the second great awakening. This massive revival that spread across mainly the north. Through the preaching like of Charles Finney and Francis Asbury and others, these northern cities became on fire for Jesus. Hundreds of thousands of people coming to faith, coming to Christ, like in stadium rallies. Unbelievable repentance, unbelievable reform and revival. 1820, 1830, 1840. God sends this revival, and these leaders were the abolitionists of the next 25 to 30 years. Many lost their lives. They were the northern abolitionists that stood against slavery, and they paved the way for the abolition of the slaves, for the freeing of the slaves. It led to a civil war, y'all. It came to that. Because the revival didn't reach the South for the most part. It was in the North. The South wanted nothing to do with it. And the revival was profound. It was like a social call to, uh, to freedom. It was about women's rights as well. It was about ending slavery. So many social issues mixed in with the spiritual repentance, personal salvation stuff. It was profound, hundreds of thousands. Christian colleges were founded out of this. There were, there were, there were entire cities that, that tore down the bars, that they had bars and, and alcohol, and they became, you know, whatever. I'm not going to go there. Anyway, but <laughs> tear down the bars. No. But the, what happened was when revival struck, the values of heaven became the values of earth. The values of, of, of the kingdom of God became the values of the kingdom of men and women. And that's... That's, the, that's our point here, is Paul is, is showing this, is this is the value of heaven, equality. And so the Civil War happened, and it probably wouldn't have happened had the revival of the Second Awakening not happened. God sent this wave that woke up the church to the real issue of equality, the real issue of human dignity and value. One guy was named Thomas Weld, and he was he was an early abolitionist that probably no one's even heard of. But he said this. He, was one of the, he got saved at a Charles Finney revival. He was, a, he was kind of a, a wild guy, really intellectual guy. He'd go and debate colleges. He'd go into a college and spend a whole week debating the professors about the value of people and, and usually overturning their view of slavery. And he said this. No condition of birth, no shade of color, no misfortune of circumstances can annul or cancel that birthright charter the right, which God has given to every being upon whom he has stamped his own image. He who robs his fellow man of this 
tramples upon, subverts justice, outrages humanity, unsettles the foundation of human safety, and sacrilegious assumes the prerogative of God. Heavy stuff. Basically, you're wrong. If you, if you think you can, you can own slaves, if you think you can be a racist and be a Christian, you're wrong. If you think you can treat someone differently because of their color or their background or their economic status, you're in sin. It's wrong. And God swept across this nation to begin that, that terrible thing called the Civil War, which was a, a judgment upon our country, honestly, because we didn't listen to these, to these men preaching about equality. So, application for us today. Application. The best bosses I've had in my life, I've worked a long time, not in ministry. The best bosses I've had, I mentioned this before, and the worst bosses I've had have been Christians. Been Christians. I mentioned before a couple months ago that I had a boss that kept a loaded handgun in his, in his upper desk drawer because he deceived so many customers. And he kept a handgun in his upper desk drawer because they'd come in and irate and he just kind of pulled his gun out and say, what, you got a problem with this? And he was a Christian. He would talk about Jesus all the time. Jesus has given me so much prosperity and Jesus blessed me. Here's my gun. You got a problem with that? One of the worst bosses I've ever had. And I've had, I've had, I've had other bosses that have been amazing, amazing. And this text is a, is a challenge to all of us that we, if we're bosses, if we're in charge, that we should be reflecting the values of the kingdom, that our primary call, our first call as a business owner, as a, as a person who's employed uh, and has authority over people, is to see people equally with value and dignity, that we would usher in heaven into the way we run our business. More than the bottom line and more than profit margins and more than promotion, we're called to be salt and light in the places that we work. And if you're in a hard situation, if you're an employee, employee of a tough boss who's, who's maybe not a Christian or whatever it may be, you're called to be salt and light and realize you're not working for them, you're working for, for God. You're working for God. I had a boss, a, a guy that I worked for for a season. I'm, I'm going to say his name. His name was Mike Jones. Mike and Doug Jones, they own Tricord Homes in Virginia. And I, I gladly say their name because they're, my, they're spiritual heroes of my, of, in my life, in Shannon and I's life. Mike was a volunteer pastor and elder at our church. He worked for free. He was a, a businessman. He developed housing projects and developed land. And he was extremely successful. He had hundreds and hundreds of employees. And um, we were friends with them and knew them for a long time. And then we, we saw the 2008 crash happen, the housing market crash. And it was especially bad in Virginia. And Mike and Doug had to lay off hundreds of employees, hundreds. And I was working at one of his sports complexes. I was managing a sports complex that he owned. And I, was just, I just kind of watched his life, he and Terry, his wife, and how they, how they reflected the kingdom of God and the nature and the goodness of God. Mike didn't take a paycheck. He and his brother didn't take a paycheck for three years. So they could pay, they could pay the employees that they had to lay off. I mean, it was just tragic. And he just simply laid down his life. And I watched him, and I watched how he worked through those years of, of living on, you know, living on no, no income, still having you know, a house to pay for and kids in college, four kids. And it was, it was an incredible thing to watch this family love people that were, were so broken. Mike has, has built churches with, with, with very little money. He's just given money to churches and given land to church. He's built schools. He's, he's given money to, given land to make sports facilities and sports complexes for the city. He's lived sacrifice. Every person in Fredericksburg knows the name Mike and Doug Jones. 
They know Tricord Homes because they are the salt of the earth people. They've brought the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of earth. And I, I, I'll see them in just a few days. In three days, we're going to see them in Virginia. We're going, we're going to visit them in, or in a week, rather. And, and, and I, I, I champion someone like that. I want to put them in front and say, this is what it means as a, as a master, in a sense, as a lord of so, much, so many resources and so much power and wealth. This is what it means to become a servant of all, to lay down your life for the kingdom of heaven. I, I would say hundreds of people have come into the kingdom because of that family. Hundreds of people with the resources and the, and the love that they have demonstrated. So my challenge this morning, y'all, is a hard topic. My challenge is that we would examine our own hearts. We'd examine our own minds. We would say, Lord, am I, am I not seeing any, anything here in my own life? Am I seeing someone unequally? Or am I seeing someone with, who's different than me in a way that you don't want me to, to do? that, Lord, what is it in this message that you have for me this morning with the issue of equality, with the issue of laying down our lives? Maybe you're the person who's, who's over many people and maybe you're in a hard situation at work. But, Lord, what do you want to speak to me this morning? Let's, let's all stand. I'm just going to be quiet as we pray and ask the Lord to speak how he wants to speak, and we'll spend some time praying and doing prayer ministry. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, hard stuff this morning, but I pray you would come. God, just remind us that we are all paid for with the blood of Jesus this morning, that you have saved us, you called us your own. And we gladly say that we, we love you, Lord. We call you, Lord, this morning. You're the king. You're the king, Lord. And we want what you want for our lives. We want what you want for our families. We want your values to be our values, your vision to be our vision. We want heaven to come to earth and the values of heaven to come to earth in our lives, in our families, in our, in our jobs, in our schools, in every area that we have influenced, God. Would you use us? Y'all, I, I just feel the desire to intercede right now, to intercede for our nation, to intercede for our city, that we, the church, would be salt and light, that we would stand for love. We would stand for the truth of Jesus. We would stand and with grace love the lost around us. We would lay down our lives for those who are broken, who are marginalized, who are needy, who are forgotten, who are over, overlooked. Father, have mercy on us for not doing this, Lord. And I pray, Lord, you'd wake us up, God. Wake us up, God. Wake us up, God, to our employees' needs. Wake us up, God, to our boss's brokenness. Wake us up, God, to the things that you have called us to, Lord, but we're too busy to see sometimes. It's not easy, God. And we repent. I repent, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit.